1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Sterabin, and welcome to America and Beyond on the New Books Network. My guest today is Matthew C. McWilliams. He is the global political opinion lead of the Foundation International Communications Hub comms hub a newly established organization located in spain and dedicated to the furtherance of civil society and democracy around the world he's a political science scientist he earned his phd in political science from the university of massachusetts where he was a visiting research associate and through surveys and focus groups he has examined the roots of democratic deconsolidation and rise of illiberal politics United States and countries across Europe and Asia. And we will be getting into this. He has conducted quantitative and qualitative research exploring this question in over 25 countries, including many in Europe and in the United States. He is also the author of On Fascism, 12 Lessons from American History. Welcome, Matthew, to America and Beyond. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to meet you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. As am I. And why don't we start just maybe on the methodological plane, just to kind of familiarize, get, sort of set, set some parameters for sure. what we are talking about. In the appendix, the first appendix of on fascism, uh, it's called Measuring Commitment to Democracy emphasis on measuring so what what's what's that about basically I'd love that you read
0: the appendices first you're not, after not my first, here. but
1: I came back to them
0: <laughs> well I I thought it was very important to include it though my editor wasn't so sure mm-hmm. yeah well, but, what do editors know yeah I know they're just editors. they're just um, editors how do we or how does political science or how do people measure authoritarianism it can't be a question that is are you an authoritarian or not because you're not going it's a tautological question so there have been questions that have been developed over time and actually it uh in terms of authoritarianism it started with the frankfurt school in germany uh in the late 1920s into the early 30s where they were measuring uh what came to be known as authoritarianism yeah, and, and Eric Fromm came from
1: that, right, as a, importantly
0: it, because of the book that he went
1: on to write.
0: Yeah, the book uh, Escape from Freedom, which was the really the seminal work on political psychology. And Eric Fromm came out of that. And it actually, it yeah. was his study uh, that uh, formed the grist for a lot of that. So out of this has come over time and developed over time uh, four key questions uh, that we use to uh, determine if someone uh, is an, uh, more likely to be an authoritarian or not. And that is actually is expanded now finally to eight questions. There was just some excellent work done. So and what's an question-
1: yeah, what's an example? Just, we don't have to do them all, but what's a good example of a, of a question?
0: Well, it, they have nothing to do with what you would consider to be authoritarianism. They're child-rearing questions. So okay. a good example is which of these qualities is more important for a child to have? This is what's asked on a, a poll. Mm-hmm. Respect for elders or independence. Respect for elders would be the authoritarian answer. Yeah, independence. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, woo-hoo. Which uh, is more important for a child to have, self-reliance or obedience? Obedience would be the authoritarian answer. And the thing that's so great about these questions, there are now eight of them. You can use the short... uh, a list of four. Yeah, pretty- I, took the, I took the test. and
1: well, Where'd you come out? Well, at first you, as did you. You write uh, that not everyone scores a one on the scale, behaves like an authoritarian. By the right. way, I, we're talking about you, scored a 0.05. So which question did you kind of go the other way on?
0: Uh, I am, uh, and it depends. Uh, when I first took it, I was 0.75, but now It a little bit. Um, Well, I had to get to the point
1: seven five. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Respect for elders and the hard one, which these qualities is more important. Being considered for being well behaved, Uh, I chose well behaved because I had kids at that point. They were driving me nuts. Yeah.
1: Uh, So then I did the same thing. So there you go. I found that a difficult toggle, actually, because I, you know, I their preferences. It's not as if either one is, you know, obviously
0: bad. Yeah, and and what's key about this is when you put this onto a scale and you put, you know, a thousand people and you take the people who come out as authoritarian ones or leaning towards authoritarianism, 0.75, and you say they should exhibit certain behaviors, like they should like strong leaders. Uh, They should uh, uh, be hostile sexists. They should be... um, Oh, lean more towards othering, you know, be find that acceptable. Yes. People who are high in the score exhibit authoritarian behaviors. So the questions are predictive of authoritarian behavior, but they're not deterministic. Right. Actually, I think I need to correct
1: something because I I I think I only got one. On the authoritarian. Oh, you're point
0: 0.25 you know. Then you're point
1: two five. It was the last very one. Very unlikely I think. to have yeah. any
0: authoritarian
1: attitudes. <laughs> well, anything having to do with curiosity or independence, I'm kind of a sucker for. Yeah. And, you know. So is that what that those those weren't difficult. But so that kind of puts things in 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 focus. And um, you cover some of this ground in in the book on fascism. But uh, before we get to that, I think it'd be interesting to discuss. The most recent you know, findings that you present. And you sent me a paper called Is Democracy Destroying Itself from the German Marshall Fund. These were based on uh, recent research that the uh, survey research that you've done. The quote itself comes from John Quincy Adams, our sixth president of the United States. And uh, he had, as you say, grave doubts about the durability of American democracy, which I think is worth mentioning, just because people shouldn't be under the impression that all of a sudden, you know, we have questions about the durability <laughs> of American democracy. This, right? This is this is everyone's it, had it, questions. All <laughs> the, the founders <laughs> had questions. The Federalist <laughs> Papers are full of concerns about, you know, majority factions destroying. Uh, director madison a right? republican or, if we can keep it or the, if you can
0: keep it I see. Yes. and
1: demagogues yeah. were yeah. central i think they were convinced that they would be demagogues and so how do we deal with that we have checks and balances so let's just clear that up right we're not yeah. talking about <laughs>
0: fresh fresh ground uh um, yeah not not at all i mean this, this is a an ongoing uh concern and John Quincy Adams, 1814, wrote, uh, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. A very, Ouch. you know, very yeah. positive statement about democracy. Yeah,
1: right. And but that the, was from observation. Yeah. Well, and he was a diplomat and he was, he spent time in Russia and he was the son of the second uh, president, in fact. Right.
0: Right. So he yeah. knew what he was talking about. He sure did. And he watched his uh uh his father in the Federalists uh launch the seditious the Sedition Act of seventeen ninety-eight and try to clamp down on uh the free press. So he'd seen yes. where democracy could go. Yep. And in the
1: survey now that we're talking about, recent survey, uh So one basic finding is that just 41 percent of Americans 18 years of age and older today are consistent supporters of democracy. The rest, a 59 percent majority, are inconsistent supporters of democracy. And then you zoom in on where I think uh, it might be profitable to go, that only one in four Americans between 18 and 39 years old, so from the start of voting age up to 39, is a consistent supporter of democracy, a full 16 percentage points below the mean support score for all citizens of voting age. So we have this sort of youth problem, and maybe we can explore that in some depth. What is going on there? How does that break down?
0: Yeah, I mean, the same way we can measure authoritarianism, we can measure consistent support for democracy, and there are five questions to use. You know, they're used by different people around the world. Uh, The World Values Survey includes three of them on their global surveys every five years. And so I've taken the five questions and we applied them to the United States through grant from the Freudenberg Foundation and German Marshall Fund, Mm -hmm. uh, but also all across Europe. And what we found consistently is that young people, 18 to 29 and also uh, uh, 30 to 39, are much less likely to strongly consistently support democracy than uh, older folks. septuagenarians in the United States, sixty-five percent of them are consistent supporters of democracy.
1: And what do you? So, what is the test of it? So, is it is it
0: a belief in the voting process? Is that? Now there core? there are five questions. One is very simple. Uh, uh, is democracy a preferable form of government? or not or are there another form of government that you would think would work better Mm -hmm. Uh, another one is a strong leader question Uh, do you agree or disagree that it's important to have it's that we need to have a strong leader who uh, doesn't pay attention this is important to congress or the courts and gets things done so Mm -hmm. if you're for the strong leader you're not a consistent supporter of democracy um, and so, in the United States, forty-one percent strong supporters of democracy. Uh, but when we look at young people, it's just you know twenty-five percent uh, average, um, and that's very concerning because as you and I. Move on to our great reward. Uh, Yes, I'll be getting my first uh, social security check in (laughs) um,
1: in March as a as a full you know full fledged you know recipient. Yes, it's a good Uh, we like that. um, But uh, yes, different generation
0: as we age, we're replaced by younger people who don't have such uh, an affinity or an affiliation with democracy, which opens the door. Larger, uh, it makes the it makes the possibility of a demagogue uh, more likely. Yes, we, yes, we, I think we yeah, can see, see this that. Not just in the United States, yeah. but it is across Europe. In Germany, the number is thirty eight percent average, mm-hmm. and with young people, it's nineteen percent, mm-hmm. uh, which is why you see groups like the Alternative for Deutschland, which is a, a neo Nazi party. Yeah, uh, growing so quickly in uh, support in Germany. Well, is there a kind of Uber explanation that you have, since we're dealing with
1: societies that uh, are on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, that you know
0: can help us understand, in particular, the youth factor? Yeah, yeah in the United States, we have. The quantitative, which we've talked about, we also have qualitative data, uh, which means we've talked to young people about focus it. Focus groups. Yeah, Yeah, focus groups, qualitative boards, individual in, uh, interviews. And the problem in the United States is uh, it, it, it has several uh, uh, parts to it. But the main problem is democracy has been flattened to the idea of democracy is voting. That's it. You vote, you participate, that's it, as opposed to de Tocqueville's civic participation involvement. and The problem with the vote is uh, young people feel, and I think many others do, that their vote isn't listened to. Voting is a sham, and the system is not responsive to them, Mm -hmm. Uh, so their support of institutions is falling. Uh, they think that democracy is just about voting and they don't link democracy directly to freedom, mm. uh, which is very, uh, and I hear, I got some quotes. I'll read them to you just from these focus groups. Like, yeah. This so, is with African-American in, men. In Okay. In America. In America, democracy is, we ask democracy is fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Democracy is lies, more lies, a broken system that doesn't work doesn't represent everyone, needs to be fixed. The system was just not built for us. That's African-American men, uh, uh, white women. Democracy is government. I was thinking on the lines of the whole point of government. I thought it was to make sure the country runs smoothly, but I don't necessarily care if it's democratic. I want to <laughs> have the country run smoothly. So I mean, just kind are... of
1: results, results oriented. Oh,
0: yeah. Uh, uh, black women... They tell us we have these rights like voting, but our vote doesn't matter. It just doesn't. Um so it's been flattened to voting. And also the other part of it is they don't see the system uh delivering results they want. Uh why can't we fix climate change? Uh why has uh the Supreme Court took away our right to choose? Why? Most people want it. Uh guns. With there are no gun controls, most people want it. Democracy is not delivering for us. And then the final thing is, you know, we can all buy or do just about anything we want online with our little phone, right? And we get it immediately. I ordered uh, some treats for my cats (laughs) from Amazon. It came four hours later. Yes, it's incredible. So we're used to this, things happening quickly. And democracy is the exact opposite of that. Democracy is slow. Well, it's... Um, So it doesn't sound like... To
1: be a bit of a deficit advocate, it does not sound like a necessarily irrational response to say that the democracy is not working because on the one hand, as you point out, it's so efficient when you're in the consumer marketplace. And on the other uh, dimension, it's really not, and not only not efficient, but not delivering really satisfactory results of any kind. So why wouldn't yeah. people react that way?
0: Yeah, because like government's not a market and government's not a corporation. Government is us trying to to resolve political differences in a way that isn't uh, that isn't violent. <laughs> and
1: so yeah
0: it's gonna take
1: time. Well how about money though? What about is there is that something that comes up in focus yeah. groups example that there's a kind of pervasive and corrupt factor here involving money and big money in politics,
0: does that play into the cynicism that we see? In the United States, for sure, uh, that plays into it. Uh, In Europe, I don't have the qualitative uh, information yet to tell you exactly in Europe what it is, but in the United States, it's certainly that the system uh, has been corrupted uh, by money and that money matters more than people. Does level of education
1: matter in these surveys in terms of the propensity to see democracy as not working?
0: Well, you know, it's really interesting uh, because educational attainment is somewhat predictive, but not... It depends on the modeling that you do statistically. Not as much as you might think.
1: I mean, not as much as you might think. Jefferson believed that education was essentially the
0: solution for the good society. Yeah. And and I think, you know, for us, what we need to to solve this, we have to make democracy relevant, uh, but show that linkage between freedom and democracy, that these freedoms we have are hard fought, well, the uh, freedom, I wanted to
1: get to yeah. that because your your survey underlies that if we talk about freedom, that's a different thing. It's a different value. And the respondents to your survey, and I imagine in the focus groups, are underscoring a pretty strong belief in what they view as freedom, which, of course, as we know, is can be kind of a compliment, complicated concept.
0: There are positive and, and negative types of, of freedom. Oh, yeah. They want freedom. But, you know, freedom... It gets defined in different ways. Yeah, freedom from by... restraint or freedom yeah, to, for... to do their own thing. <laughs> Be able to do, I mean, with some of the people who are low on the uh, consistency of support for democracy scale, right? So they're mm-hmm. let's say they're in the middle mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they're white uh, and they're male, they say freedom is to do whatever in heck I want, whenever in heck I want. Okay. Uh, whereas. Don't if tread you know, on me kind of a. Yeah, and and if you go, but then there's also the civic responsibility uh, side. Some will say freedom is part of, freedom are are rights that I enjoy, and we protect them by working together for them. And then with African-American men, it was really clear, freedom is just the right to exist, basically to have laws that protect me on the system that yeah, gets stuffed in an yeah. arbitrary way by the cops right. and that kind of thing, yeah. Freedom is, and that's and they're scared of losing that freedom. Sure. Uh, well, who yeah, that's yeah. The, you know, it uh, I think it's interesting just to the economic side in Europe, there's a lot of work that's been done on democracy, um, uh, and young people not being for democracy, but they go in with big blinders on thinking it's all income. So it's those lower income people who aren't well-educated there. We have to teach them about democracy. It's just wrong. Mm. It goes across the scale. Uh, It's starting with a bias when you look at it. It's upper income, middle income, lower income. It's really the difference, uh, a commitment to community, commitment to uh, government and working together yeah. that's the key. Well, community, let us we will get into that. I know yeah, that's yeah.
1: important. But with freedom, yeah. I mean, I've always thought of freedom as a kind of our Lockean in America, our sort of Lockean inheritance. I mean, as Jefferson casting it as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I know that Locke himself... I think he said property and not happiness but life liberty all that stuff and so that to me is is sort of in the mainstream of the american experience and it sounds like that's actually holding up pretty pretty well in some right. in some sense as opposed to well, the democracy uh dimension and,
0: and what people learn those who get civic education because obviously civic education is not uh uh is not really doesn't happen in many schools at this point. It just doesn't. But the civic not education taught as a class, is that what you're it's saying? It's not taught Uh, or it's just an afterthought. It's secondary. Uh, I see. And in school after school, it's a real problem. But when it is taught, it's all about the plumbing of the constitution, like the first seven articles, Franklin's part of the constitution and less about Madison's part, which was added uh uh, after the ratification, the bill of rights, the bill of rights. Um, So, and, and people learn about it and then forget about it. And there's checks and balances, but I don't know what they are. I'm not sure what the Supreme court does, except they're an anti-majoritarian institution. They would say right now, they wouldn't use those words, but that would be their thought.
1: I see. Well, that's a little bit frightening, but on the education, but I guess not surprising. So community, uh, I want to come back to, which you describe uh, like freedom is also a value-laden, emotionally packed term for most inconsistent supporters of democracy. Community is place, family, togetherness, connection, nostalgia, safety, responsibility, and
0: hope all rolled into one. So community is popular, right? Community, and you know, what's interesting within the word community is the word unity, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, A community is really important to these younger uh, Americans who are inconsistent supporters of democracy, and they want to participate in it. They want to volunteer in it. They want to help it. They want to work in it. They find it difficult to do, uh, difficult to find on-ramps to get them involved. Uh, But to me, one way we turn the corner on this and help people understand how important democracy is, isn't by lecturing to them. It's showing it in action through community service and what that does. Right. And that by working together, we create a better uh, society, a better community, a stronger community, a community that can be democratic, and where people can talk and have differences and not uh, fight each other. And it seems a bit like a paradox because the lack of connection
1: or interest in democracy might suggest a certain kind of cynicism, which is at odds with a desire uh, for community and for volunteering and taking all those actions. I mean, or how does that paradox get resolved?
0: Well, there's some people, you know, lower on the uh, the democracy scale. There are people who like don't want to be part of it. Uh, it is I don't care, but it's the people who can be reached uh, who aren't. Uh, who are uh, stronger supporters of democracy. They aren't consistent supporters of democracy, but they aren't saying no to all five questions. Those people are the ones who are more likely to care about community. And community can be good or bad in some ways. If it's traditionalism and if it's unity that leads to uniformity, uh, that can be very... um, that can lead us into an authoritarian path. If it's Ooh. unity that's, that includes diversity, recognizes that we're a diverse society, and celebrates that, that's the path to a more equal uh, right. and just society. So well, you have to be careful about it, but it's the, there are people like, we call them four or fives, that means they were inconsistent and in supported democracy in four questions or five out of five questions. Right. Like they are not, they're not in our in our uh, target mix. And yeah. really, when you look at them, if you do uh, analysis, they're authoritarians. Uh, okay. They want order. They want uh, obedience to authority. They want a traditionalism. Uh, and if you aren't within their traditionalism, they want you out of this country, out <laughs> of power. Uh, and they want nostalgia 1950s. Uh, communities that uh no longer exist anywhere, <laughs>
1: yeah. <now>. Well, nostalgia <laughs> is usually uh, a desire for a past that never was, anyway.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, that's all other. <laughs>
1: We yes. can discuss that topic, but actually, so let's pivot and make this a little bit less ab- abstract and not to put you on the spot, but we have had some uh, election uh, results. We're in the midst of the presidential uh, primaries, two to be precise. On the Republican side, we've seen, you know, Donald Trump uh, for the third time running uh, uh, for president, uh, performing w- well among his base, his core voters. Um, If we can extrapolate, is that in some way a signifier uh, on this authoritarian dimension? Is that what Trump or his followers uh, are
0: embodying? Yeah. First, let's start with this is not normal, what we're seeing. It is Normal always scares me, though. Compared to what? I mean, that word. Compared to... it's outside the bounds of the guardrails of democracy. <laughs> that's what. That's what is what I the mean it? I mean, Trump is, or the, the MAGA movement, or what, yes, what, what, the what... MAGA movement. And uh, what has happened is, it, it Trump started this in twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. He's activated authoritarianism uh, within the, uh, which was a latent. Uh, uh characteristic within the Republican Party. Yeah.
1: So from latent to activated. Okay.
0: Yeah. And it's there's a whole uh great book on this called The Authoritarian Dynamic. And authoritarianism is always there. The question of is, is it turned on right. or not? Who wrote that it's, book that you if you were referring to the book? Who oh wrote Ka- that book? Karen Stenner.
1: Okay. Just to uh, get that authoritarian in
0: authoritarian dynamic, brilliant book. And Trump turned that on, and he turned it on through fear. Uh be afraid, be very afraid. It's the paranoid style of politics that Hofstadter talked about. Yes, I wanted to get into that as well. Yeah, yeah. But, but and ab- so he, yes, he, he has turned that on. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a then, light switch, almost. Yeah, it's a switch, and I mean, it took him a while to do it, but he turned it on, and it's reshaped the Republican Party. Remember, in 2020, the Republican Party had no platform. Right, they didn't have a platform. They didn't it was see just a need for Trump a platform. Said, yeah. Right. Um, they don't have one this time around either. They don't have this time one around. What what they really have is fear, fear mongering, and identification of the other. Mm-hmm. And the other is coming to take us away, to take our rights away, to take our traditions away. To the you know, I won't use the language he was using because it's just so awful, but. Uh, Well, it's out there. I think, you know, vermin, he's referred to vermin. I mean, he's using Hitler uh, language um, and fascist language. So he has stoked this authoritarianism. And the problem is the elites within the Republican Party, which which means like members of Congress and others could have said no, could have fought him. Uh, And actually, after Jan 6, they did for two days, but they've totally rolled over at this point and they're you know enablers psychophants followers of trumpism so they're feeding into uh the entire uh um, right and that's probably we... chaos mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of, uh, the hardest thing to see is evangelicals <laughs> here's uh you know you look at, at the Eugene Carroll uh and um uh you know that he was he's been uh uh the legal system has said that he uh raped her and here you still have uh i don't think it was happy to be technical i don't
1: think they i don't think the conclusion was rape but but there was a, a different uh term applied actually then.
0: the judge came back and said that's the I, equivalent of rape um, well, okay if he did that i stand corrected yeah, says, not in
1: the initial verdict anyway not
0: in the initial, but the when he came back because
1: uh-huh. Okay, so got... let's not get into the weeds on that, but yes, yeah, yeah. Trump has been confronted by the, uh, is being confronted by the legal system, and we see this authoritarian uh, wave, Strain. as you describe activated. But well, let me just give you though at least a little bit of a of a counter narrative because I know that this is something you thought about as well, which is that uh, there's a populist wave. And uh, a lot of authors have spoken to this. My friend and uh, author John Judas wrote a book called The Populist Explosion, which was coinciding with Trump's rise initially that got a lot of attention. And I think a lot of people, both political scientists and journalists, have accepted this idea that populism is, in fact, the main dispositional dispositional driver behind the rise of illiberal politics. But you face that squarely, that question in your book
0: on, on fascism and argue otherwise. Yeah, there are ways to test for populism too in surveys. Um, and we've done that. Uh, and what you find is there is some overlap between authoritarians and populists, but not a lot. And one thing with populists- Well, how do, you,
1: how do you test actually? I wasn't familiar oh, it's, with that. It's
0: a five, six question battery. Like like uh, what's a what's a question? Uh, oh, the questions are: um, they're agree, disagree. Uh, one, for example, is um, when uh, someone gets elected to parliament or Congress, uh, they quickly forget the people who sent them there. I agree, see. disagree. Uh, mm-hmm. um, that the people uh and the leaders are uh the, the leaders are much different than the people in the way they view the world agree disagree there you know six uh question well the full battery is seven you can do it with five okay but, but, but when you, you do that and you mm-hmm. look you realize that populists are much more likely to support democracy in democratic forms mm-hmm. than authoritarians authoritarians I see. aren't And this is true in the United States. It's true across Europe. So that's a a really core distinction. Core distinction. Go to Poland. And we just had the big election in Poland. The PIS, the Law and Justice Party, which is for neither law nor justice, Mm -hmm. is supported by authoritarians. Mm -hmm. They don't care about democracy. Civic Platform, which stands for democracy, is uh, supported by populists. Same thing in Italy. Uh, Populists. Uh, supported the Five Star Movement. They don't did not support uh, Maloney. Maloney was supported by authoritarians and in, uh, in and you see this in country after country. Germany is the same thing. Christian Democratic Party will have populists within it. The Greens definitely have populists in it. They don't have authoritarians. The authoritarians are the neo-Nazi party. Uh, alternative for Deutschland. Well, in America, then is is Trump supported by authoritarians, but not by populists in these terms? It's more authoritarians are more likely to support him than populists are. Mm-hmm. In the end, so much of this has gone washed out just by party ID too. At this point, yeah. Um, but if you're a populist, you're much more likely to be supportive of democracy and. You know less likely to be supportive of yeah. Trump.
1: I guess I've always maybe my understanding of populism is overly informed by our economic history, but I always associate the populace with the movements of the nineteenth, late nineteenth century as uh, a reaction to concentration of, of capital and railroads and Democratic Farm Labor Party. Yeah, I mean, the desire to to really address that in a very comprehensive and, and substantive way. So I don't always identify today things that are called populism with that kind of populism. I mean, Trump is, well, he's calling for tariffs, which might be sort of populistic, but he's not, you know, that full kind of gamut of populist solutions is not something he's embracing him. When he was president for the first time, he embraced the Republican standard uh, menu of corporate uh, and and individual tax cuts. Exactly. Not a populist measure. Not a populist place to go. (laughs) Not a Tom Watson populist. Uh, No, more of an control and rich people place. Yeah, more (laughs) oligarchical. That's a whole other word. So. Anyway, we don't have to establish. This is not so much about populism, but I I just thought it was an important distinction to make. And and but I think one of the charms of your book now, if we could talk about on fascism, is that you revisit these lessons or you describe these what you call twelve lessons from American history. Uh, Lesson one is about American enlightened authoritarian Lincoln. Versus Douglas, and we can talk about that. But I actually found myself attached a bit to a lesson two, uh, fomenting fear and the paranoid style. And there we get the historian Richard Hofstetter, who coined this phrase. I guess I, I, I guess he did. I mean, he wrote the essay. Yeah, yeah the paranoid. I, I think he did. Yes. Well, I'm not sure that right. The paranoid style. I think that people have tried to describe in in various ways. But he certainly gave life to it in his essays, the paranoid style in American politics. And by my recollection, at that time, he was talking a lot about, you know, there was sort of Goldwater. There was a lot going on on the right wing, the Birchers and all of that. And he identified well, he was that going
0: back as far as. Uh, the know-nothings. Uh, Anti-Catholic, nativist, yeah. know-nothings. know Nothing. He was going way yeah. back into. Yeah. Uh,
1: Yes. I meant that he was writing when he, I think it was published in the early sixties and at, at that four, there you go. So at that time, that right. might've been a, a kind of a prompt for him. And then he returned to this style and politics, which you obviously think has great
0: currency. Oh yeah. I think Hofstadter had it, uh, you know, and he, he said there's sort of like four steps to this paranoid style and, to me, the paranoid style is just activating authoritarianisms and that uh, authoritarians, and that's where it comes together. But mm-hmm. you know, first, uh, the paranoid style politicians conjure another, and so you know, think of Trump coming down the escalator. The first thing he did was start, and that first speech was pointing out others. Uh, those you know, dirty immigrants from yeah. wherever. Some of them are uh, what, rapists, criminals. Rapists, and and, and yeah, some may and, be good people. Yeah, some might be good people. Yeah, his, his, the Trumpian flourish to that. Yeah, so the, so might be. the second step is that you describe the others different from mainstream Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they're, you just think through what we've seen the last two years, you've seen that a lot. Then the paranoid leader, the third stage you stoke that there's a hidden conspiracy, the deep state, you name it, all the yes. conspiracies that we heard. Now it's the Justice Department is conspiring in, in, against Trump to hold him accountable with the rule of law. And then finally- well, and, this, and, and I want to mention w- that
1: the local DDA in the Fulton County uh, in the Atlanta area is targeted by Trump this is a black woman for being a racist. So he kind of flips these categories. I think he's also saying Joe Biden is, is the real fascist in this race.
0: Yeah. He flips everything on its. Well, and then the final stage, which we're in, this Mm -hmm. is like the, as good. (laughs) No, it's not. It's, the The fear is manipulated to rationalize actions that violate fundamental values, norms, laws, constitutional protections. And that's Trump saying, I'll be a dictator from day one. Right. Well, that's Trump saying well, on day one, on day one. Uh, I'm not going to, uh, you know, uh, he ignores the Constitution. He ignores laws. Um, so to take that though beyond Trump,
1: because I think it's important to understand. We talk sure. about the MAGA movement, but you know, as somebody who comes from a background in journalism and you know writing, you know, nonfiction, I want to emphasize, uh, I've been just kind of amazed by how thoroughly the media, uh, and the conservative media ecosystem, has been co opted right. in this. And I don't know whether it's like for Fox News, it's largely a commercial phenomenon because they simply can make money out of this kind of coverage, or whether it's something different. But Trump and MAGA would not really be able to penetrate so deeply, I don't think, if it was their message was not so well a- amplified by this conservative media ecosystem.
0: Yeah, it's amplified by uh, broadcast, cable, and online. Um, and the ecosystem feeds on it and makes money on it. So um uh, they make money uh spewing falsehoods and you know it goes back to Kellyanne Conway uh the day after Trump was inaugurated and there were discussions of the size of the crowd at the inauguration yes and, you know, he was just making up stuff I and know. she said well we have uh our facts and they're alternative facts and yeah. alternative facts are real I remember Chuck Todd just looking at her saying no alternative facts are lies <laughs> they're no such yeah. thing there are facts <laughs> uh, well that takes us
1: into your lesson three all lies matter the oh, father yes. of hate radio and deep state conspiracy so again this is in the department of how there's really nothing new under the
0: sun so talk to us a little bit about father coughlin well you know it, and it goes back to an earlier comment you made which no when the constitution was formed, the founders said there are gonna be demagogues out there, but we can devise a system yes. to try to control that. Yeah, so demagogues
1: first... are internal and the founders, just to be clear, they were studying all the way back to, you know, ancient Greece and you know, they were very aware of what had happened before this
0: exercise in republic formation. Exactly. None of this is new. And they saw it. So first, they had the Senate. Okay, that was supposed to be a bulwark. Mm -hmm. And second, just the scope of the republic. I think it's Federalist 11 or Federalist 10 talks about how the scope of the republic would be a bulwark against uh, demagogues. Yeah. Well, obviously, that has changed. Well, mass media can help to change to to shrink the country. Yeah, and the first time when really the country shrank quickly was the, uh, uh, start of network radio mm-hmm. and father Coughlin, which was uh, when, known as when... the father hate yeah. radio. Yeah. And when did, what was his period? And 1926 is when he began the radio league of the little flower and oh, it's good. golden hour. There you go. And, uh, that sounds father sweet. Coughlin, yeah. Isn't it? And he started out with one, uh, radio station, uh, and then expanded to a whole network. And he got to the point where in the early thirties, he was reaching 40 million Americans wow. when there were about 140 million. So I yeah. think of that 40 million Americans each hour that he was on, I think it was on every uh, weekend for one hour. Well,
1: that's incredible. I mean, the 140 million Americans includes uh, children as well. Right. So we must be talking about one out of every
0: three or even better adults. Right. And when you look at it first, like take Sean Hannity's radio uh, show. Father Coughlin's like was 10 times the size yes. of
1: his reach. Tucker Carlson, and, when he had a show, too, when people, I thought, endlessly gave attention to it. If you looked at the numbers, it, you know, a thimbleful in terms of most Americans are, in fact, are, are watching Netflix or their media diet is not. Of just you know a Sean Hannity or anyone you know on the left that you might think of as doing the same thing. Yeah, so that's one difference, right? Father Coughlin was truly a, a mass media figure.
0: Well, and he made money on this also. So you know he's a he was a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, he turned this into a profit making venture. Uh, uh, he was also an anti semite, mm-hmm. um, and uh, became a, a supporter of fascism. Mm -hmm. um and this is you know depression right um and post-depression and was communicating that and founded an organization called the christian front uh Mm -hmm. which became known for beating up jews and proclaimed themselves father coughlin's brown shirts Mm, um and he became a real thorn in the side of fdr um and there was one time uh uh, it was right after Kristallnacht in Germany and Austria, mm-hmm. uh, where he went on the radio and blamed the Jews for Kristallnacht. Oh, yeah, boy. And the 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 feeling was at that point, or the the, the the data was that about 22% of Americans heard Coughlin's broadcast, of all Americans, mm. heard his broadcast around that time. Mm. Um, and... Uh, it, So he was the father of hate radio, the father of the conspiracy uh, radio. Um, In 1939, uh, a new pope was installed, and the new pope basically said, no more Father Coughlin. Uh Uh, And so that's how he disappeared uh, out of radio. So authoritarian
1: sometimes get taken (laughs) care of by... Let's yeah. say authority,
0: authority figures. Right. That and that's what happened. There was a gatekeeper named Pope Pius the Twelfth, and he reined in Coughlin uh, and unplugged his a megaphone. And I think right. you know because then obviously we were engaged in war, and uh, the question was who saw do you on. Yeah. Well, let's. I wanted to do one more uh, lesson seven,
1: the driving out. Chinese persecution, exclusion, and massacre. And here our touchstone is our never-ending debate about the border, particularly the southern uh. border now, which which I think it has to be said. I mean, the, the numbers certainly suggest that there are many, many millions of quote-unquote encounters. Now, I mean, it's a real issue. So it's activated our politics in a very large Way and you see here, see rev, uh, resonance back to the uh,
0: the Chinese I- I exclusion. Oh, yeah, How is Chinese that relevant? Ex- ex- Chinese exclusion act of 1882, but it's not just. It's it's more uh, the driving uh, out.
1: I think is your term. Yeah,
0: driving out. But the the act in Congress was the exclusion act. Mm-hmm. But but it's even more recent than that. I pointed to the other chapter on on the Japanese internment. Yes, yes. Um, and so there's always another. Uh, uh, and when you target them, uh, they become the people you try to exclude, or in turn, or in some ways, uh, use to build your political movement. And you know, here's a uh, just a little poll data I pulled. I was working on the Reuters uh, poll that was just uh, came out. It was 5,000 sample in the United States. Um, it was with Ipsos and Reuters. Mm-hmm. 69% of Republicans now say illegal immigrants should be arrested and put in detention camps, in detention camps, while awaiting deportation hearings. Mm. Arrest and, that's and all, detention. Yes. While awaiting deportation hearings, that's 11 million people. Mm-hmm. Who would be arrested and put in detention camps? Now, if you go back to 1942, it was only 48. percent So Japanese Americans should be should stay uh, in the internment camps uh, and uh, not be allowed home. This was during a world war. <laughs> so, yes, so you can see you've got 21 percent more, and that is authoritarian activation. So we have the the Chinese exclusion. Uh, You know, Japanese internment, we all know what happened to Irish Americans, Italian Americans, you know, there's always another, there's always someone that gets targeted by demagogues to be the other, and they use that politically to build power. I think it's also Um,
1: important to point out, though, as you do in your your chapter on the Japanese uh, internment, you write that influential journalists like Walter Littman, uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, fed these conspiratorial flames, as you call them, Littman warning that, quote, the Pacific Coast uh, is in imminent danger of a combined attack from within and without, and that the absence of the attack so far, according to Littman, was simply a sign that the blow, you know, that will come is well organized and has been held back. So just to remind, I mean, Walter Littman was one of the preeminent journalists of his age. I mean, I think most people would describe him as a figure of you know, enlightenment and, and reason. I mean, he spent much of his time trying to demystify, you know, public opinion. So of all people, which I guess points to a sense, you know, that maybe none of us is completely uh, lacking in susceptibility here. And we can think of it, after nine one one in America, we could think of all of the people with, you know, the polls on being ready to support uh, torture, basically, in order to save the
0: country. Well, and, and also who is president, at that time a democrat fdr at that uh, time yes and and who apologized who is the first the president who apologized to the japanese it was obama i think was it no it was reagan it oh, was, was august it 10th 1988 okay. i okay
1: i take you on that it, absolutely and
0: he uh uh and that was it was a it, it, it it's worth watching the former this. governor of california it should be yeah. Well and also he had, he had a long history uh on this that he when he was a, an actor right after the war he uh went around uh and there was a ceremony where he um uh, gave uh I think it was a bronze star to a Japanese American who fought in the for the United States in the Pacific theater Oh yes I think uh... and, and, and it's just and he brought that into the uh, August 10th, 1988 uh, ceremony and linked his involvement, I think it was in 47 to 88 and talked about how we have to have a society that is just and where people are equal. And so it's not just, you know, that's the Republican, (laughs) at least in my generation, Ronald Reagan. And he was the one who apologized uh, for what we had done uh, to the Japanese Americans during the war. I thought it was, it. it's, you can see it. Uh, you just put in YouTube, Ronald Reagan, yeah. you know, Japanese internment. It, it's, it brought tears to my eyes just to watch that. Well, the passage of time, of course, is, is passage, always. Well, and, and also a political figure realizing that that was what was required morally. Um, that we needed to recognize the history and apologize for the history. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a,
1: it's a fine sentiment. And I mean that sincerely, that somebody like a president would do that. And it just strikes me of my generation that uh, the coarseness of so much of our politics, which is in some way connected to this is, you know, you sort of sound like a little old lady when you talk about these things,
0: but it's dispiriting. It is. It is. I always always think about my mom who fought in World War II. Mm -hmm. She was a a woman's Army Corps captain, one of the highest uh, uh, women uh, serving, was in uh, London during the buzz bombs, first people into Paris after the Nazis left. She always talked about people, snipers shooting at them and the general staff. And I think she would be turning in her grave right now. She is turning in her grave with this. Um, And we just, we have to get together and uh, remember what this country is about. That's our challenge uh, that we all face. Yes. Well,
1: I hear you on that. And I think that's a good note for us to uh, conclude as well. I want to thank you for your thoughts and your insights. I want to encourage people to follow Matthew and to read his uh, book on fascism, 12 Lessons from American History, because these lessons are not going to go away and are always <laughs> it's always good to be reminded of, of, of them. So thanks, everyone. I'm Paul Sterabin. You've been listening to America and Beyond on the New Books Network.
0: Thank you.